I'm Josh Gonzalez, and welcome to MindMeld. This is a podcast where I have in-depth conversations with some of the brightest people in the known universe. My aim is to spark deep conversations around interesting topics to find the tools, tactics, and philosophies that we can all use in our daily and creative lives. In this episode, I sat down with Bart McDonald, the managing partner of Bloom Venture Partners, to talk about building wealth with software companies. Bart has been operating, investing in, and acquiring software companies for more than a decade now, and he still believes that we're in the earliest stages of software as a service. So we talk a lot about all these open opportunities out there for entrepreneurs who want to start a software company, even if you don't have any technical skills. We talk about how to set up and structure the business so that you can eventually sell it as an asset to generate wealth with, rather than just building yourself a job. The whole idea is that you can build an asset that you can sell if you want to leave. And Bart talks a lot about the different avenues on how you can actually do this. Bart also introduces the idea of acquisition entrepreneurship from the other side if you want to buy a company, where instead of building a company from scratch, you can acquire a small software business, scale it up, and then even eventually sell it as a really great opportunity to build wealth as well. There's a lot packed into this episode, and if you want to find links to any of the things that we talk about in this episode, whether that's resources or some specific things that we talk about, you can find everything in my detailed show notes that I publish along with this episode over at joshgonzalvescom slash podcast. That's J-O-S-H-G-O-N-S-A-L-V-E-S dot com slash podcast. If you found anything interesting or useful in this episode, please share this episode and feel free to reach out to both myself and Bart on Twitter. I'm Josh Gonzalez underscore and Bart is at Bart McDonald on Twitter. You can find the direct link to our Twitter profiles in the description of this podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe on whatever platform you're currently listening to this on, whether it's Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, etc., or whatever podcast app that you enjoy listening to your podcasts on. I publish new episodes on different topics every single week, so hit that subscribe button to get notified when new episodes come out. So let's get right into it. I'm Josh Gonzalez, and this is Mind Meld with Bart McDonald. All right, Bart, thanks for joining me on MindMeld, man. This is awesome. I'm glad that we finally got a chance to sit down and uh, get this conversation rolling. We had a lot of back and forth to schedule things, but uh, I'm glad that everything's all good now, sort of. Um, how have you been, man? How, how have things been? Yeah, Josh, great to be here, man. Thank you a lot uh, for hosting me today. I've uh, been a long-time listener of your podcast and um, yeah, I've learned, learned a lot from some of the guests you've interviewed over over the last couple of months as well, since I first heard about uh, your community. Uh, and I appreciate you having the flexibility to, uh, I think it was three or four attempts to, uh, to kind of get on the recording today. So been a bit going on on, uh, on, on my personal end. Uh, not that your community is probably too interested in hearing this, but uh, I think I was mentioning over email last week, was, um, was planning to have my wedding uh, here last week. And uh, unfortunately, uh, found out the evening before uh, that a close friend of ours uh, in the bridal party actually come down uh, testing positive to, to COVID. So we had to um, had to cancel that, which is our second cancel wedding of, uh, of 2020 due to COVID. So a little unfortunate, but, um, uh, you know, smiling and, and laughing about it, trying to keep it all in perspective, you know, a couple of days on. But uh, we'll, we'll get there get there eventually. My, my wife and I were joking that um, uh, she is my wife, le- legally married earlier this year. So this was kind of the 
the wedding ceremony and we were laughing saying that, you know, it'd be hard not to see a sign from the universe if we weren't already uh, legally married. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that would have been uh, awkward, right? If you weren't legally married, you'd be like, "Uh, maybe we should call this off. Well, it's a good thing you guys didn't and you you did your own thing. But it's interesting. That's all part of the story, right? That's something you'll tell your kids, grandkids and family. It's like, yeah, this whole COVID-19 thing really affected, well, affected so many weddings this year. I can only imagine how many people had to cancel weddings. So I'm glad that you guys are legally married and, and it's all good and you guys aren't sick or anything. So Thank God you guys are all, are well, all healthy. That's, that's the most important thing. Our, our friends, uh, you know, who, who tested positive, they're well. We're, uh, we're well. We're, we're in day 13 of, of our self-isolation now, still negative. So get our final uh, final test tomorrow. But, you know, I think that, that was one of the biggest learning, well, biggest points that I've reflected on that uh, my kind of, you know, immediate fight or flight rate response when we found out was, okay, like how do we plan for the wedding? Like this is a big shame, cost singing, et cetera. Uh, and then I was like, oh my gosh, like I'd probably been a little bit more blase over about COVID and, you know, catching it over the last couple of months and, you know, still taking all the necessary precautions of social distancing, wearing masks, you know, all the usual uh, CDC recommendations. But uh, immediately was like, man, there's nothing more important than health. And uh, it was like, that was probably one of my big reflections over the, over the weekend, uh, kind of like just re- recentering on values and just being like, hey, you know what, like, uh, healthy, wealthy, worldly, and wise. Like they're kind of my, my four like recentered values here in the back end of 2020 and just realizing that and without, without health, you kind of, it's a non-starter. So, um, yeah, when, when, not that we had a health care, but just kind of realizing, oh my gosh, like if we do test co- uh, positive to COVID, I have asthma and some other respiratory things. So it's kind of a, that brought it front of, front of mind to me of realizing like just how, how important it is, uh, you know, just to, to make, make sure you have great health going through life. Yeah, totally, man. Well, I'm glad that you're all healthy and you know what? Everything's good to go now. So you know what? Um, you know, I think we're going to get into this really deep rabbit hole of exactly those three points, the healthy, wealthy, and wise. I think more, we're definitely going to talk more on the wealth aspect because of just the nature of your business and what you're doing right now. So why don't you explain just sort of a high level or go as deep as you want on what you're doing with uh, Bloom Venture Partners. And maybe you can also talk a little bit about your story coming here because I think it will wrap things up really neatly on how this conversation will unfold. Yeah, I absolutely love to. Um, so I've got, like, I guess many founders and entrepreneurs, especially the folks, uh, you know, you're lucky to, to interview in your podcast, Josh, like a bit of a zigzag story. So I, I hail from Sydney, Australia. I originally grew up in a family of, uh, of entrepreneurs. Parents both own kind of service, in, service businesses and, uh, you know, all the siblings uh, you know, all, all we ever did growing up around the, the time conversation was, uh, you know, really centered around family and kind of, you know, what, what we're celebrating, what we're achieving. But ultimately, conversation, the narrative all, always wound its way back to you know, hearing about, uh, you know, mom, mom and dad's businesses and how they were growing the, the ups and downs of, uh, of being entrepreneurs. So I knew at a very young age, I wanted to be a, I wanted to be an entrepreneur and actually started out my, uh, uh, my career, um, you know, during the middle of the, the GFC. Wanted to go into management consulting, and, and obviously a lot of those roles were shut down for graduates at the time. So went into what I perceived the next best thing was a, a graduate program at, a, at a, one of the world's largest mining companies. And um, that was just, you know, during this time, obviously, Australia had, had really bypassed the, 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 large, the largest extent of the, the GFC propped up by the commodity boom back in Australia. And so had a great experience there. And I spent a lot of time working in around HR, organizational development, leadership development programs, and was fascinating. Uh, kind of like Wendy Rhodes from Billions, like just kind of taking the mindset of, look, you know, if you're a, an elite athlete or an Olympian, you, you're really going to, um, you know, 
have those best practices on on and off the court, uh, you know, kind of in your arena um, to, to really be the best you can be every day. And, you know, fascinated with people that take that same mindset, mindset or outlook into the business arena and, and entrepreneurship. But ultimately, it was just realized I'm not a uh, not cut out for being part of a large enterprise and, uh, you know, sort of really being at the ground uh, on, the, on the ground or at the coal face of, uh, you know, building businesses was really where my passion lied. So I had an opportunity. I uh, built a, a company back in Australia, really a single base exit. It's taking something like Chegg.com, which is uh, obviously an amazing business out here in the United States, taking that through Australasia in the student notes uh, uh, marketplace and, and textbook rentals uh, as well. Got out to a first base exit and then uh, had an amazing opportunity to join a very a new embryonic company called General Assembly, which um, um, assuming many of your listeners may be aware of today, obviously uh, one of the most progressive uh, education technology platforms. Um, but at that point in time, they were really actually just doing co-working uh, in, across America. They just opened up in, in London and were, had opened up a very small satellite office in, in Sydney. And I just had you know, extremely good fortune to join in very early on uh, at General Assembly, you know, sort of sub sub thirty employee, and um, just hung on on that rocket ship to, you know, they passed 500 employees and uh, had an amazing career experience. But I think working with uh, so many just amazing uh, American colleagues every day, um, particularly in the San Francisco office, I, I realized I just wanted to get, uh, you know, really engrossed as part of the uh, software ecosystem out here in, in the Bay Area. And so moved out early 2016 out to San Francisco and then started my next startup with uh, actually one of my Oldest friends from, uh, from back in Australia who was already in the Bay, uh, working as chief of staff at a uh, great fintech company. And uh, we started our next company, which is called Sapling HR. That's still live today and a uh, you know, very successful uh, HR software platform as a SaaS business. Um, raised almost $10 million from uh, Google's AI Fund, Gradient Ventures, and a number of other amazing uh, uh, investors and CEOs, Warby Parker, Envision, and, uh, and others. And uh, towards uh, the back end of last year, really just started thinking through how I've been had very blessed with this, um, a lot of opportunities to be an operator and, and take ideas from kind of, so take enterprises from kind of ideation stage, finding product market fit, and then going through, uh, you know, go to market fit and really scaling out the, the, the team. But um, as I've become more and more interested with you know, building financial wealth using, um, you know, entrepreneurial endeavors as just one capacity through, you know, building a startup, I really became um, you know, engrossed with the ideas of like other passive income streams and, and wealth creation. And obviously a large part of that is uh, direct investing into other early stage companies that uh, you know, I'd had good fortune of meeting amazing founders around the ecosystem kind of bi-coastally in, in the US and, and back in Australia. And so I started doing a bit of angel investing and, and kind of one thing led to another and uh, started realizing that my kind of passion and experience being a B2B SaaS founder and operator um, combined with you know where I just saw the market going with this, it's never been easier to create a SaaS platform, but it's never been harder to then tr- get true scale. You know, going past a million, five million dollars of revenue. That you know, there's um, you know on both sides, founders oftentimes you know are really enjoying the process of building companies. They start reaching a ceiling and kind of want to go after their next uh, endeavor. Um, but in that small cap SaaS market, they just haven't really been. The opportunities for liquidity um, for those founders and, and early stage teams. Conversely, on the investor side, you know, oftentimes there's great opportunities to kind of come in and see, you know, what maybe some engineering founders have built an amazing product, but they just really have needed some additional help to come in and think through you know, pricing, packaging, 
know, unlocking partnerships and different go-to-market channels to build repeatable, cost-effective uh, growth. And so that's when we realized, hang on, there's this kind of opportunity to start acquiring um, you know, these privately held small cap software businesses. And so uh, over the course of 2020, it's gone through this amazing journey of building out this new venture platform uh, called Bloom Venture Partners. And, uh, we have three pillars there. One is Bloom Studios, which is a, an in-house agency. And we offer uh, to all sorts of early stage through to more mature SaaS companies, uh, product design, development, and growth marketing uh, services. We have a, a venture capital fund called Bloom Capital, and that does early stage investing, uh, like really minority minority investments uh, in kind of seed, seed stage uh, startups all around the world. And then just recently uh, launched our acquisition uh, fund called Bloom Equity. And, uh, and there we're really excited, uh, speaking with some amazing companies to kind of come on, whether they're you know, bootstrap profitable companies, founders looking to go to the next stage of their journey, or they've, they've previously raised venture capital, um, but just haven't been able to get that sort of 10x growth lever. And uh, and again, whether it's the investors, board, or the founders are kind of all wanting to sort of move on to their next uh, project, then we can come in and uh, and support that growth profile. So yeah, it's been a been a pretty fascinating ride coming from a uh, you know operator in, in in Sydney, Australia, all the way out to San Francisco, and uh, having the opportunity to kind of spend a lot of time now with some amazing entrepreneurs and, and help them think through product and, and company building. Yeah, that's awesome. There's a lot to unpack there, and there's so many like awesome directions that we can go in from that. So first of all, I love your story. I think that's just like. It's it's really inspiring to see too because I'm also like in the like early stage startup side and it seems like you've already had some great success and you know I think it's really great to have people like you on Bart where you can like really share this knowledge with other entrepreneurs who can be listening to this or you know they randomly find this online like this will live online for a while right so whether it's like immediately or later on I think there's a lot of great wisdom and a lot of great tools and almost like strategies that we'll be able to impact. So I'm definitely going to probe you for some of these things um, based on the story. So this is great. There's a lot of a lot of places we can go. But I really want to center this conversation exactly on this one point that you brought, which is like this idea of like building personal wealth, right? It's like you start building your personal wealth and then you start reinvesting that into the community for other entrepreneurs. But in the process, you're able to create these more passive flows of income. So that's really interesting to me because like for a while I've been thinking, okay, like if you want to, if you want to build wealth, you have to build a company. It's got to be super successful and you have to have an exit, but that's like almost like stage one, right? We talked about this on a call um, a couple weeks ago of oh, let's preface this too. We were connected through Jay Vasantharaj, who was also on the podcast. I'll link that, that episode in here. Um, you guys, um, are working together on Bloom. So we can talk about that just to preface all this because we've talked um, to, to Jay about this of like the sort of stage one, stage two, and then we're kind of bringing almost like a stage three type business. We went from like stage one being like a service type business, which you've built into Bloom, which is really, really interesting to me. There's like the stage two, which is, you know, scalable software businesses, which you've A, done and B, also building into Bloom. And then stage three is we talked about it as sort of like acquisition entrepreneurship. So there's three awesome pillars that we can go through here. And a lot of things I think a lot of people don't even know were sort of uh, possible. So let's bring this back to maybe General Assembly slash what you're doing with Sapling. Because you said Sapling is still going right now. So how much of your involvement is still in Sapling? And how much did you learn 
from General Assembly being like this really huge company. Like I know it from Toronto, even they acquired Bitmaker Labs in Toronto. So that's how I knew about them. Uh, so like they're huge. So you, you obviously learned a lot from there, brought in the sapling. And then we can talk a little bit about, um, you know, your involvement in sapling and kind of how you're doing multiple things right now, because that's a huge pillar for this podcast, too. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you to kind of uh, unpack that one. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Well, yeah, lo- lots to go off. So I'm uh, pretty fired up for, for the rest of our, our convo, Josh. So let's like, I guess, reverse back chronologically, right? Like, yeah, going, going back to kind of the, the general assembly days, I think I'd, um, I had been, as I said, fortunately, like my, my story, I'd been around a lot of entrepreneurship, but as it was more sort of services entrepreneurship. My, my parents run bookkeeping and accounting practices, and it had all sorts of, you know, like, uh, cafes and cake shops on the side, like very, um, uh, you know, couldn't be further apart from kind of, you know, digital entrepreneurship as like the, the product that you're selling. So I kind of grew up in a, in a household of like principles baked in or steeped in around entrepreneurship and kind of taking control of, of your destiny and, and kind of financial wealth creation um, as, a, as, a, as a tooling. But in terms of the actual product and their customers, <clears throat> it was actually, um, you know, much, much later on. And I, I kind of you know, went through a period for a couple of years of like regret, which, uh, you know, I've moved past now, but like I was regret. I was like, man, why did I, I not spend more time like learning computer science or learning to code? You know, I would have been able to compound and be able to get started on my journey e- even earlier. But, you know, I think over time as you probably wise and mature, you just realize like, hey, do you spend more time um, trying to, you know, uh, correct your weaknesses, you know, change your two out of fours into threes out of fours, or do you spend more time taking your 3.5s uh, to, to fours and I think like Buffett talks a lot around like your your circle of genius or your circle of competence and just like just uh, really unleashing your superpowers and so yeah I spent a lot of time realizing that like my my sort of sector where I'm you know uh, can drive like alpha or outsized returns on my career is really kind of that early stage of company building and really go to market and, and leadership and so um, you know the opportunity to join General Assembly was like probably one of the most humbling, humbling career experiences. I still remember this phone call. I, I had a uh, had the job offer come through one afternoon. I remember you know call, calling my my mother for, for some career advice, and she was like, "Well, I've never heard of the company either. They were, they were just launching in Australia." Which is like, look, you know, given the profile of the investors behind them in America, um, you know, just how quickly they're growing and the mentor that you'd have the opportunity to to work underneath and learn from uh, there in Australia. Who's a you know repeat very successful repeat entrepreneur? Um, it's like you know I, I don't think it's a question of like do you hop on the rocket ship? It's like hop on and, and just don't even care about what seat you're on because the opportunity to learn it's just like exponential learning. And I think that was like from reflection probably my my biggest takeaway of like the gift that I was I was you know, granted uh, at that experience of working at General Assembly. I mean at, at the time Australia Sydney as a, as a startup ecosystem has come a very very long way in the, in the last few years. I think on the on the on the world stage, people are really sitting up now and watching Atlassian and watching Canva and watching a handful of other like just extraordinary fast growth companies that are growing as fast as you know a lot of companies here in the United States and are receiving as much capital um, as well as from you know receiving that capital from USVC. So it's been a uh, you know Cambrian kind of ex- explosion of activity in the, in the uh, startup ecosystem probably in the last five years. But going back to kind of 2011, 2012 when I was at, at General Assembly, it was that was probably my, my biggest takeaway of just seeing, 
you know, just understanding uh, and experiencing firsthand what exponential growth felt like. You know, I'd, I'd been around the startup ecosystem. I'd seen a lot of my friends building startups, but, you know, compared to working for a company that had raised, you know, north of $100 million venture capital and the, the rate of growth of just unlocking new markets. I mean, we, we went from like 30, uh, just under 30 employees when I started to about 800 in, in about two and a half years. So tremendous growth. And, um, you know, I got the opportunity there to, Start out in Sydney and then move down to Melbourne, uh, launch that campus and, and run that as general manager and then spend a bunch of time in Hong Kong and, and Singapore and just seeing, uh, you know, firsthand how a lot of these American venture-backed companies were run, which I just would never have had the opportunity to back um, back in Australia at, at that point. So that was, um, that was a tremendous experience. And as I said before, that was really, you know, realizing then that like, hey, the opportunity to be an entrepreneur and apply that skill set uh, or that domain in the, the realm of kind of digital products, um, in particular like soft, software as service businesses, as kind of you know I, I deem SaaS as like one of the most high, high quality or like pure business models in in the software arena, um, which you can talk about later. Um, you know, I, I realized I just wanted to to move out and you know, like any cottage industry, if you're in acting, you want to move to LA, you're in finance, you want to move out to New York, just really being in that, that, that hub. Um, and for me, it was being, you know, in that ecosystem where they, you know, not only tolerate, but almost, you know, um, prize and, and embrace failure. And, you know, there's just all the pillars of that uh, needed for that successful ecosystem from capital to people that have got experience, like the candidates you can hire and help company building, um, you know, the culture of celebrating failure, as, as I mentioned. Um, it was amazing. And so it came out to, to build Sapling, um, as I said. And, you know, the first couple of years there were just absolutely brutal. I was, uh, you know, my, my co-founder, Andy, and I were two very unknown quantities. You know, we didn't have name brand uh, uh, schools behind us. Um, you know, we hadn't, you know, whilst General Assembly was very recognized, uh, recognizable, sorry, it was in a completely different industry. It was, you know, an education technology uh, platform both online, uh, so there was a digital element, but it was also uh, classroom-based education. So very different business model to, you know, leveraging the rule of 40 and triple, 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 double, double for, for SaaS yeah. businesses. Uh, so kind of had to like start all over again, basically, and kind of like reinvent myself as, a, as an immigrant founder in, in the US, which, you know, uh, the first couple of years was just uh, dreadful to be to be candid, but like a lot of things, it just com- compounds over time. And uh you know, I think we, we just had so many lucky breaks where we just, you know, our first couple of, our first angel round, we were literally raising $5,000 checks just off like previous colleagues and former bosses and just a- anyone in the fam- family, friends circuit that would um, take take a bet on us. And then all the way through to, you know, obviously where we're at now, which is having the, uh, you know, good good fortune and, you know, very humble position to be able to power the onboarding and, and HR programs for some of the world's most recognizable and culture first companies. So, that was a great journey, but as I said, as I said before, you know, at the back end of last year, was, was realized that you know my, my calling. I, I wanted for a number of reasons wanted to move across and kind of sit in like the midway of the pendulum. You know, there's kind of I, I look at it as you know you can be like a, a, a full time operator or you know full time capital allocator, and uh, you know I really wanted to sit somewhere in in the nexus or in, in the bridge between the two, which was leveraging my operating background and, 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 you know, all the other parts of the ecosystem, the different capital providers I, I know and candidates and the customers I can sell into. Um, but, uh, but also moving across into the, the capital allocator because, you know, recognizing that, Hey, we actually understand how to identify and then drive, you know, uh, outsized returns through picking and then, you know, un- unlocking the right value drives in those types of companies that we're acquiring. 
And so I uh, decided to step down from my position as CEO and uh, of that company and actually pass the reins across to my co-founder, Andy, who had started out as effectively running product and then moved across into COO role and then later into the CEO uh, over a couple of quarter transition we did. So I decided to stay on the board, obviously, is uh, you know, just a, an amazing company and, and coming from that HR background, I wanted to stay very, very close to um, you know, something that's been you know, almost five years building out. But uh, today, yeah, not operationally in, involved anymore, which, you know, something that's, uh, you know, that could probably go down a rabbit hole there for like kind of 10, 15 minutes. I mean, I, I read a, yeah. read a, an amazing tweet thread. I'll, I'll share it across to you so you can link to it out afterwards, but it was from the CEO, oh, yes, CEO of Circle Up, who I saw on, uh, on Twitter this morning, had just talked about why he's stepping down from uh, the CEO role of his business after nine years running that and just saying, you know, just the emotional confusion and trauma that causes for founder um, who, you know, when, when you're a founder, uh, you just spend so much of your life uh, thinking about building the business. You know, if you're not at work, you're away, but you're thinking about work and, uh, you know, trying to have that like loss of identity that comes with moving away from a business that still exists, but you're no longer the CEO of that. So that was something that was a, a very interesting experience that, yeah, probably no matter how much reading or speaking to other founders could have done to prepare yourself, uh, just nothing actually prepared for the real event of, of transitioning out of a company because a lot of people are like, well, why? Like, how did you do that? Why did you do that? Like, what, what sort of comes with that? And so I think there's just, you know, uh, a lot of education that probably could be beneficial for, uh, for the founder community to kind of openly talk about, you know, uh, the, the types of like mental health issues that I know a lot of founders have gone through where they kind of have got to a level of success. They've, you know, got, got all the markers of success. They've raised institutional capital there, you know, a known quantity in their industry, able to hire amazing talent, win incredible brands that they can make successful to their product. But founders feel stuck and, you know, they say, Hey, the, the air, the air thins out at the top and uh, they just don't really have a support network they can turn to and they, they want to move on to their next venture, but they truly feel stuck. It's, it's crazy the number of founders I've spoken to in, in 2020 who I've heard like, man, I you know, wish, wish I could do what you've done. I just don't, don't know how there's a role or a way for me to actually like move out, keep the business running without um, being right. fully reliant on me. And I'm like, well, man, you just built yourself a job. Like, that's not building an asset yeah. where you can walk away from. So uh, also no, tra- transition out of in, a, in an exec capacity. So yeah, a lot of, lot of learnings through, uh, through, that, through that experience. Yeah, I bet. Because it's almost like a breakup or divorce, right? I mean, it's not the same as like an actual divorce, like a Steve Jobs getting kicked out of Apple sort of thing, but it still is like a conscious uncoupling as they call it, you know? Um, Yeah. Why don't you kind of go a little bit deeper on that? Because I think that's a really valuable thing to talk about because even myself, I've been feeling the same way. I talked about it briefly with Jay, but I almost had the almost the opposite experience with my um, SaaS startup expo from our company Controverse, um, where it was almost like the opposite. I was forced to take a step back due to COVID, but that's just because the market that we chose was in live events, conferences, and film festivals. So like, I was forced to be like, hey, like, you're not going to you can't keep doing this. Like that market is literally done. It just completely crumbled under your feet. The product is super diverse. So we can go in so many different directions, but it forced me to take a step back and be like, okay, like, A, is this what you really want to be doing? And B, how do you want to be involved in the company? And also C, if you are going to complete this and keep going with this, 
what kind of markets are you going to go with? So I've actually just been fortunate enough to kind of be able to take a step back. Um, not in the same way that as getting like a full exit. It wasn't like, Hey, I want to, I want the company to run it. And I'm going to leave. I'm like, I'm going to still be in the company. We're going to put this on pause. Cause luckily it was actually small enough that we could do that. Cause if it was too big, I'd be screwed. Right? Like if it gets to a certain point, you would definitely feel stuck and it would feel like, like you said, building yourself a job. So I could have had that opportunity of, Hey, like, look, go and sell it, go sell your shares or shell or sell the entire company. Cause you guys, the companies like yours exist where you can like take over the entire thing. So maybe we can kind of get into, um, what does that process look like when you guys do take over a company? Um, when you guys do decide to acquire an entire company, what does that handoff process look like for these companies that are like, Hey, I don't really want to do this anymore. I kind of want to exit. I want to do the next thing. What does that look like from your guys end? Like, what is, is it different every time? Just kind of walk me through that process. Yeah. So let me, let me talk to that. I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to circle back and talk a little bit more about like the founder expectations on like wealth creation yeah. through startups as well. Cause like I've gone down through a pretty, pretty interesting journey, just like thinking and, and talking with a lot of folks about that as well. Like kind of the expectation reality gap, um, that I think is pretty yes. important. So yeah, specific, specifically to your question, look, I think it <clears throat> very significantly, um, now, I spent a couple of quarters working for um, you know, a great friend of mine, managing partner uh, of a another B two B SaaS focused buyout and, and turnaround fund, and um, you know their their approach was really to um, you know support the founders who, who'd come to them looking to sell their their business. Most of them had actually raised some sort of uh, institutional capital, so not just like a family and friends from retail investors, but actually had had like committed funds invest into them and. Uh, you know, they'd kind of gotten to the point where they'd spent several years proving out the thesis, the business was working, they're good to great business, they're just not going to be outlier businesses that are going to get that 100x or return the entire fund. And the investors know that, the board knows that, and, and often the founders know that. And so, yeah, I think it usually just comes to kind of a meeting of the minds and it really is a, it depends, but it's probably not the answer anyone wants to hear. You know, sometimes it's, you know, uh, one founder wants to hop off the journey and say like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to leave. It's a, you know, it's a small team, sub 10. It's going to create a pretty big shift for the business going into kind of act two. We want to bring in some different capital partners. We actually want to do a secondary or some of the existing investors to, to you know, partial or fully, uh, you know, sell down their, their shareholding the business. So you can kind of do some like recapitalization and some folks go, some folks stay um, all the way through to, Hey, we just want to do a completely clean, uh, asset transaction where you know everything from our source code our customer contracts all the ip all the team literally transitions uh transitions out and the acquiring entity the uh, you know, private equity fund would then staff up with their, their own team um, and if you kind of double kill on that it can be even more new sometimes it's the founders that want to transition out or the owners of the business that want to transition out and the existing team stays behind um or they want to do some sort of you know three, six, nine, 12 month advisory roles. So they're kind of, you know, available for a couple of hours a week for, you know, strategic planning, product road mapping, et cetera. But, you know, operationally it really uh, transitioned out of the business. So yeah, not a one size fits all ruling. Uh, it sure. really is kind of a, you know, it, it just depends. And I think the, the, the exciting thing is we're just, we truly believe we're, we're, we're so early in the first innings of SaaS. Uh, if you kind of if you look at the data of like the number of SaaS companies that are being created, the number of SaaS companies that are going through you know, first rounds of, of uh, capitalization, seed rounds of funding that 
aren't then moving through to follow-on financing of a Series A, for example, within you know that 24, 36 month period that are kind of they're not zombie startups, that they're good businesses, but you know, they ultimately get to a point where the founders are like, hey, we spent five, six, seven years getting to sub three, sub five million dollars of revenue. And you know, based on whether it's a profitable or a non-profitable business, based on the you know the comps in market, if you start looking at the valuation and it's around, you know, 10, 20, 30 what my ownership is, hang on, like, you know, adjusted for the number of years I've spent probably earning a under market salary along the way, maybe from a wealth creation perspective, I'm actually better off going back to the plate and, you know, uh, bowing out now, uh, you know, on sort of first, second base, and then stepping back up to the plate to have another swing uh, while I've got time on my side. And so I think it really just comes down. Every founder has a different preference, but that's something that we're certainly starting to see a lot more of, which is founder saying, you know, this is not around like, um, if you actually disassociate your identity and ego from it and say like, hey, yes. I'm just there to create multiple assets on the way and take it from an idea to a actual asset that's creating value. There's a product, there's a repeatable playbook about how to acquire customers efficiently. You create that asset, you can then pass it on, it creates value for another acquire, and then you go on to your next next product. And I think it's just something that, you know, if, if you'd explain that concept to me five years ago, it was just like anemic to that. I was like, I don't want to hear it. Right. You want to do one big thing and run with it and make it the biggest thing ever. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. It was like zero or one. I want to raise that. It's like, it's almost the, the celebrating uh, venture capital. And, and I kind of, you know, over time I've just, um, wouldn't even say that wise enough. I've just kind of, you know, have enough data points and enough, you know, primary examples now, life experiences to have a, a fundamentally different uh, view of the world. Yeah, it's definitely an awakening, right? I think over the last couple of years, more people have been waking up to this because it was like maybe from, I don't really know how early, but definitely like during my entrepreneurial journey when I was even studying in university, I studied, well, I did like an entrepreneurship minor while I was in university studying um, basically media production. So I think that was like a really great opportunity because like I guess this would have been like 2013 all the way up to now, the last seven years. I'm sure it's much longer than that, but like people were really obsessed with that Silicon Valley ideal, right? Of like raising money and just, it's all about valuation. It's all about revenue. And then like, they don't even care about profit. They're bleeding money just to keep raising more money. But like now people are kind of a little bit more woken up to like, hey, a real business right now, it can, doesn't have to be massive, but it has to be profitable in some sense. Like you have to be able to to raise the money. And I think now too, more than ever, a lot, pe- a lot more people are bootstrapping, right? And we did want to get into that a little bit about the bootstrapping versus raising capital. Like, is do you see that there is a plus more than, or maybe more of a pro than a con to like bootstrapping this? Because nowadays, especially with like no code and it's been like cheaper than ever to build these companies, do you see like it's it's good to bootstrap up to a certain point until you want to kind of hand it off or until it's ready to be fully acquired? Like, what are your views on that now? Yeah. Um- let me come, I'm going to come back to that in a second because I just want to clo- close out the point before and, um, and kind of like found, founder expectations. Um, something else that I just sprung to mind was, uh, this is a great article. Again, I'll, I'll link it to you so you can, you can share it out. It's by, um, by Jason Lemkin from Sasta on, uh, kind of local versus global maximum. And it's something that I spent a lot of time speaking about with investors and, and advisors and uh, other founders in the space. And the, the concept is basically if you would kind of draw this like, curve of like um time versus valuation on the two axes um you know the local maximum is basically uh yeah, so folks understand 
the, the statistical concept is like you may actually have um, the ability to sell on a much higher multiple when you're doing, you know, $750 million of revenue and you're growing at 30, 40, 50%, uh, you know, month on month growth or, you know, two, 300% compound annual growth rate. And you're just really just starting to prove out the thesis. You're just starting to hire, you know, the cavalry is coming, you're helping, you're just starting to knock down a few big names as clients. And you're really just selling, selling the vision, you know, the blue sky opportunity to investors. And a lot of people come in and, you know, pay up extreme premiums for that um, all the way through to then, you know, the global maximum, which is, okay, you, you built a, you know, bona fide, like legitimate asset. Maybe you're at 10, 30, 50 million, hundred million dollars of revenue. And you're really just getting completely valued off comps, almost akin to, you know, public market um, comps. In that like dearth in the middle is like, is fascinating. People have said, don't, don't get stuck there because there's a limited number of buyers that can actually, like in the, the universe of potential acquirers who can actually take out a company doing a hundred million. Like if you get an offer, you know, and you're doing a million, two million bucks and you get an offer and, you know, you're, say you're, you're profitable um, and you, you know, six times on EBITDA or you're, you know, you're a VC back company, you're focused on growth over profit. So you're cash flow negative, you're getting acquired at six, eight, 10 X on, on revenue with the ability to get profitable. Um, you know, you, you should seriously consider take, you know, taking the win and kind of going back to it. And, you know, it's fascinating. I was speaking with a friend uh, over the, over this weekend and they were, uh, they were kind of talking about, they've unfortunately been uh, affected or their, their business has been quite severely affected through COVID. And uh, they, were, they were kind of saying like, you know, they're previously around uh, almost eight figures of ARR and then um, they probably lost 30 to 40% of that revenue base and they're trying to rebuild it. They were saying, you know, they're almost eight years into that business now and uh, have raised a, uh, some good amount of, of VC. And they're saying you know, back when they were at two, three, four million of revenue, um, the multiples that they were getting offered was significantly higher than where the multiples are in the business now because irrespective of the, you know, the structural headwinds they've been facing through COVID, you know, because of the base of revenue that they now have, you know, these new category of acquirers are like, well, you know, like, let's go and quadruple click on this specific metric here. And, you know, it's a ways off from what we like as public comps. And so they were kind of reinforcing the, the whole point of, look, you know, the, the, the um, you know, building a, a valuable asset early. Um, and if you, you know, if you get the opportunity to sell early, um, you know, really think twice as a founder of whether you can go the entire distance of like getting up to 20, 50, hundred million dollars of revenue or potentially looking to exit at, the, at that early stage. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I think that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, just seeing the way that the market, have you seen like the market shift over the last couple of years towards that? Like, have you seen like this big change going on through some of these companies or is it kind of tried and true now in some of the data points that you've been, you know, following over the last little while? Has it like, Probably, it confirmation, probably, confirm, no. probably confirmation bias. Probably I, I started thinking a lot more about that and speaking to a lot of people and, and realizing that there's certainly a, a segment of founders, but um, you know, look, it's, it's very real. I mean, I think you speak to a lot of founders who are like, look, you know, just because I, the company gets valued at X, you know, I, I, I remember probably a year or two ago, uh, when I first landed in, 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 in San Francisco, uh, you know, getting connected to this CEO of this company, which was just couldn't do a thing wrong. It was just in our industry. Everyone kept talking about them. They were raising, um, incredible amounts of money and incredibly high valuations on an incredibly short window of like spacing between rounds. 
they were quite, you know, acquiring all the most amazing customers. And then, you know, they ran into like real structural challenges and like the business like went upside down. They got it really ahead of their skis yeah. and kind of that realization where it's like, wow, you, you be in the cycle long enough to see, um, you, you know, playing the game long enough to see like the actual yeah. cycles of the market. Um, of like the, you know, the, the, the race isn't a certain number of millions of dollars or a certain amount of venture capital raise. Like the race is just like, Hey, just building consistently building a, a sustainable uh, and enduring business. that's just, you know, constantly going to innovate and evolve and, and create value for customers over time. But you know, that, that learning that, uh, that you hear from founders around like, you know, um, businesses being bought out for tens of millions of dollars, but with press stacks and everything else, you know, founders only walk away with. Um, and a much lower amount of money than they would ever have realized. And then you got 83 Bs and other things that may not have been far along the way. And then you got paying out like 30% or more of taxes and realizing like, oh my gosh, like for something that feels like one of the most uh, difficult events of uh, not even anyone's career, but one's life, um, realizing like, hey, you just need to be really smart. It's not just about building a business, it's about how do you leverage that business to create wealth for yourself as an, as an entrepreneur? And if you're kind of playing that VC game where it's like all or nothing, um, there are different ways of using, um, you know, software entrepreneurship to create wealth. And I think that kind of maybe is a good tie across to then like bootstrapping. So I think, you know, to, today, I think, don't get me wrong, like I think venture capital is, a, is an am- amazing asset class. And I think there, um, you know, obviously it's why we're a, a, a very supportive investor of the asset classes. I think it's, the biggest thing both on the investor side and on the founder side is just uh having that very candid conversation of like does this particular business at this particular point in time in the end market is trying to serve need venture capital as opposed to are there other types other sources of financing which could be less dilutive and more aligned to the founder's goals as well and so bootstrapping i think as we've seen from SaaS and you know if you think about it, like software as service businesses over the last couple of years, there's obviously been a very strong shift um, to product-led growth. You know, bottom bottoms-up tools that you know you can go onto the website. You don't have to you know click a request request demo button, fill out this lengthy form, wait three or four days to hear back from some pushy sales rep, and go through that like annoying experience where you're just trying to be uh, fine and soliciting eliciting um, uh, details on the product. Instead, you can just click a button, set up an, an account and, uh, you know, get a 7, 14, 30-day trial. And if you like it, put a credit card in and then you can just start sharing across uh, your community or your organization. And so that process of show, don't tell, right, uh, of kind of like bottoms up uh, led sales experience is, um, you know, is obviously what we're seeing today is just becoming incredibly effective. And you can augment that bottoms up experience with also like top down enterprise sales, which, and companies like Atlassian and Twilio and, and others have just done phenomenally well. Um, but I think that the same uh, can almost be extended across to bootstrapping as well, where, as I said before, it's, it's never been easier to create uh, SaaS companies, right? Think about all the complexity, yeah. all the cost that went into being a, SaaS, a software entrepreneur you know, a decade ago, you know, just getting out of the gates to build a software. I mean, I think like you hear the stories of kind of, Yelp, and I think listen to a, a podcast from of, uh, Josh Koppelman from First Round the other day. He was talking about you know hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, had to be raised just to pay for the servers before they could even start building code. Uh, it's kind of like wow, it's crazy. Wow. You know, you can 
literally go on and use, you know, third party like open source code bases and, and, and libraries and frameworks and software of code, um, spin up a, you know, an AWS instance and, you know, in a very quick amount of time, it's very easy for developers um, and low cost for the, for, the, for the business owners, you can start shipping product. And of course, there's more and more people now knowing how to code or develop software applications, which means that's the cost has also come down to hire that talent as well. And so I keep saying, look, it's never been easier to create a software company. And obviously, with now the inclusion of low-code tools, which have even further removed the barrier for entrepreneurs to then uh, play a part of the software uh, ecosystem, yeah, I, I think we're just going to continuously see more and more of these low, no-code entrepreneurs coming to market, um, you know, solving customer challenges in ways where they don't need to be a technical founder or a programmer. Um, and in, in, indeed, more and more entrepreneurs using the path of bootstrapping because, you know, if you're a, you know, let's take it, you're a solo founder and you've got an idea, you've wireframed it, you've taken it out, done some customer development, customer discovery, you've validated the initial idea, um, you then take it out to, you know, an agency or some friends or somehow find some, some uh, uh, talent to help build the idea for, you know, five, 10, 15, sub $50,000, you can potentially have an, an MVP or minimal viable product out the door and start selling. Now, if you're a solo founder and you're able to then sell, you know, you get it up to 500, a million dollars of revenue and you're able to sell it for a million or a couple of million dollars of revenue, that's a life-changing amount of money. If that same yeah. founder has gone and raised let's say a $500,000 pre-seed round on a three to $7 million post money valuation, selling that company, like obviously the investors won't be very happy because they just haven't been able to get a, a return relative to if they had deployed that capital in another company that was obviously looking to go all the way through a you know, hundred million dollars of revenue, a billion dollar valuation plus. So that's why I think there's going to be a lot more bootstrapped companies uh, coming out to market over, uh, you know, over the next decade or so as you know, we, we move into that second innings of SaaS. Oh, I totally agree, man. That's exactly it. It's like we're getting into stage two SaaS, right? Like, this is like second inning. I love your analogy to baseball because, like, that's, um, I mean, you hear that a lot in VC and, and obviously in investing, you know, you have as many swings as you want, you get a home run and whatnot. So, I love, I love, first of all, that analogy because I, we can keep coming back to that as sort of an anchor. But I love that idea of going into the second inning because it's so true. Because now there's like these SaaS companies that have been built to help more SaaS founders build more SaaS companies. So is that sort of where you position Bloom right now? Like kind of knowing, okay, this is the future. We're going to see a lot more uh, bootstrapped and, you know, maybe lower. I wouldn't, I don't know how I would kind of describe it, but, but these companies have raised lower amount of money and maybe no money at all, or just a little bit. And there's going to be this whole new economy of SaaS founders. Cause I totally agree with no code, man. And I wanted to ask you about that because do you see that as um, something that might deter um, uh, someone like you that's looking to to acquire a company. Like if you see like, okay, this company was built on like Webflow or they're built on Bubble, some of these tools rather than it being hard-coded, you know, they have all their own source code, which most of the time, like you said, they use other libraries anyways. It's never been easier to solve problems now. You could, you know, whip up a site on Webflow. You can use Bubble. You can use Glide. You can literally use just Zapier and like Airtable. Like they're solving a problem. I guess as long as it's making money, like how do you view that? Like if you're if a company is coming to you that's built their service on no code, do you say, hey, we'll wait until you've proven this out a little bit more and then build it from scratch, or do you say, hey, I don't really care what it's built with. We want to go in on this. Yeah, so I think so. Like the you know the, the 
fundamentals are tenants of assessing any business, um, you know, whether it's we're going to do a minority investment or an acquisition is like, you really like send it back to like three, uh, you know, three or four areas, which is like the market, the product, the team, and then just the business metrics. Right. And so at the end of the day, obviously product is going to be uh, a key, key area that we're looking to unpack and understand like, you know, what is the like, structural defensible moat of this business over time, right? Is it they've got network effects? Is it they've got like key distribution partnerships? What is it? Now, part of that uh, for, for some companies, they may say, hey, our, our moat is that we ingest X millions of data points every day. And with that data, we can then start forming networks, create this graph. And then over time, it's like the sum of the parts uh, is greater than the, you know, the, sum, the sum of the parts sorry, is, is greater than the individuals. And so, um, that's where we would look at it and say, look, you know, I think there's no real issue with a low or no code um, business um, having a, you know, a great valuation, having the ability to go out and, and raise venture capital to scale or even looking to go out and, and, and be sold. I think it just really comes down to what an investor is going to be looking at is how defensible is this said differently if you know, uh, Joe, Sally, entrepreneur can go and create a product using a low or no code third party application and create that product in five hours and then get it to X tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue. Whereas someone else went out and was using, you know, React uh, and Node.js and then hard coded and it took them 500 hours to build the application was maybe slower at growth because they had to spend so much more of that fixed upfront cost on software development, but then was able to scale much faster and compound over years, you know, years two, three and onwards. I think that's really the question we're looking at, which is what is to stop, you know, the number like Joe and Sally's competitor going replicating and just putting five hours in and going, uh, you know, taking market share away from them. That would probably be how I'd, I'd be looking at it. Right. And that totally makes sense. It doesn't really matter the back end of it or how it's all built, but you're, you're right. It's really that moat that you're always looking for. And that's kind of one of the foundations when you're looking at any kind of an investment anyways. Right. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, let's get into this then. Let's just say you are going to restart your your founder journey, knowing what you know now. What would be some of your advice, and like, how would you think about rebuilding or building a SaaS company now? Now, that's a great question. Um, so, as as I said before, like, I think for you know several several years, I was like, why why did I not spend more time learning uh, learning development? I was spent a bunch of time. Was very fortunate being uh, obviously a general assembly and. We used to mm-hmm. kind of moonlight after after work. Would sit in on, on a lot of their courses, learning learning uh, development. But um, what I actually what I actually realized, as, as I said, was I think I'm uh, you know for, for certain founders, or let's call them non technical founders, or like more the commercial yeah. business founder CEOs. You know, you don't necessarily have to be uh, a technology uh, or deep have deep competencies in technology. You need to have extraordinary product sensibilities. But I think you can definitely partner up, not outsource, but partner up with strong technologists to help deliver or build and deliver the product vision that you have. That's something that I've spent a bit of time realizing that, you know, I think for for me, a lot of my superpowers are around hiring and and leading an amazing team, setting the vision, sales, which, you know, is obviously important, whether you're selling you know, candidates, whether you're selling to customers, whether you're selling to bring uh, capital partners and investors onto the into the journey with you as well. That's a you know a superpower that every CEO um, need, needs or founder needs to acquire. So kind of realize like that was where I need to spend more time, just like 
tripling down on the uh, innate strengths that I, I already had and to worry less about the things that I didn't have and just to partner up with other founders over time. So, um, you know, I think, yeah, if I, if I was start starting out uh, my career again today, it'd probably be spend less time worrying about what I didn't have and more time just recognizing like what's that, that sort of circle of genius and just tripling down on that, building out a network or an ecosystem around me of you know, complementary talent that we can go in on. And I think, you know, recognizing that it's okay to have lots of like quick singles and, and, and doubles, um, you know, the old like it's a marathon, not a, not a sprint. Like you don't need to be a one and done, build a, a 10 year company from idea to IPO and then go and start it again. Like it's okay to actually take a different approach of entrepreneurship, which is you can be bootstrapping companies, you can have lots of you know, quick singles um, or even go out and buy someone else's business and let them do a lot of the, you know, initial hard gritty work on finding product market fit and validating demand. And then kind of instead of coming in and doing the zero to 10, you're coming in at stage one and then going through to stage 10 through, uh, you know, acquisition entrepreneurship, as you, as you touched on earlier. So, yeah, a lot of different things. But I think one of the biggest thing is, look, you, you talked before about like bootstrapping. And uh, I was putting some, some books where my boot sh- bookshelf earlier today and, and saw Peter Thiel's like zero to one book and was just kind of thinking about like how ruffled up I, I got after reading that, which is I don't know, a lot of people did because it's like very much yeah. geared to like the, you know, the uh, founder that's looking to raise venture capital and looking to create, um, you know, deep structural modes through hard to replicate technology and create a billion dollar outcome, which as we know is obviously just not uh, the goal of, of, you know, all entrepreneurs out there. And so I, I think there's kind of this middle ground. And, and for me, I would have probably spent a lot more time up front being like, look, do you, you know, what sort of entrepreneur do you want to be? Do you want to be someone that can, you know, uh, do you want to be a founder and have a small team and kind of opt- optimize for lifestyle and other points of balance? Or the you type of entrepreneur where you want to go out and, you know, create structural change in a massive end market? And in order to do that properly or effectively, you need a significant amount of growth equity and, you know, you're likely going to, in order to hit that, you're going to need a significant amount of talent with you. So you're going to be going from idea to product to then ultimately running several hundreds of team members of thousands very quickly and raising a significant amount of growth capital to achieve that vision. Um, it's all entrepreneurship. There's just different points. And so spending more more time, you know, measuring twice, cutting once at the, at the start of the journey, I think would, um, you know, behoove a, a lot of founders. Yeah, totally. Do you have any resources for for like early stage founders, like any books? Like I know you mentioned Zero to One, which might not be perfect for this example, as you kind of mentioned. Um, was there any other books or resources, blogs or anything that has really opened you up and really kind of, you know, given you that sort of awakening to this kind of ideal? Well, I think the the, the areas that I've, I've looked at is... Uh, is less on kind of like entrepreneur. So over the last six, like six to nine months now, I've been spending less time reading uh, or like engaging with with folks in the community around general entrepreneurship, uh, which I've obviously spent in the north of a decade now, just kind of learning about you know, product management, go to market, growth, leadership, uh, fundraising, managing boards. But then it was like looking at investing and venture capital and. Now I think I'm in that that you know stage of life. I think there's you know three three parts of, or three trimesters, right? You go through learning and earning, then returning, and kind of go all the way back to the cycle once you've created that wealth and built your career, and then it's around you know paying it forwards and spending a lot of your time in like philanthropic endeavors. So I'd say I'm like now very much coming into that like uh, the middle, the midway of like that that earning stage, and uh, you know like I said before, I think a lot of founders. Um, 
you know, are just so hyper-concentrated in one asset class, right? Like they're kind of, they're doing extraordinary hours building out a business, but they may not be spending any time, uh, you know, hedging or de-risking by putting, parking some capital uh, in other asset classes, which can throw off passive income and start generating, you know, capital appreciation in other classes, whether it's, it's public stocks, whether it's real estate, et cetera. And so something that uh, I've actually spent a lot of time you know, rereading recently was this, uh, a book by another Canadian entrepreneur, um, Jeff, Jeff Wiener was his name. I think it was like Kick-Ass, um, Kick-Ass Entrepreneur's Guide to Investing or something. And uh, uh, again, I'll, I'll link it through to you, but I think it was fascinating because it was around this, this you know, very successful entrepreneur who bootstrapped his business for, uh, it was around, it was just under or just over 20 years, but then taking this principle of, um, you know, having a significant, significant amount of your personal uh, equity or net wealth stored in your business's equity, so your, you know, your shareholding in your specific business venture, but then having uh, you know, another third tied up in property, which you can do through you know, public REITs, you can do through crowdfunding, or you can do through you know, syndicated deals or even like direct investments of single or multifamily properties. And the third, the third uh, trimester being of your kind of portfolio being in, in stocks. And so that's something that I spent a lot of time thinking about as I've shifted from being probably a little overexposed of like a lot of my net wealth just being in like one major asset class being you know my, my shareholding in a, a private company to then diversifying out a lot more of that and uh you know kind of balancing that out across many different asset classes and then double clicking within each asset class you know i've kind of yeah spread spread that around pretty pretty significantly now across you know um uh yeah yeah, a, a range of different in, investments, and that's something that I've been really focused on, and, and spending a bunch of time reading up around, you know, per, personal finance uh, as well as, a, as an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. I think that's that's a really, really great piece of advice. I think Jay talked about it too. Like he's, I'm sure as you know, like he invests in real estate. He does a few other things. So, did you learn a lot from him as well? Kind of partnering up with him because he's definitely like you're talking about superpowers. You're like finances, Jay's superpower, right? So, do you learn a lot from him as has he given you any kind of advice on that? Yeah, you, you bet. I'm so so fortunate to have um, you know, the opportunity to, to work with with Jay. We um we actually met on on Twitter. In fact, awesome. everyone on the the Bloom team, uh, we've all we've all met on uh, on Twitter um, through various interactions, and then have you know all joined uh, joined into the Bloom team at, at various points on the journey, which is which is pretty incredible. But it's also I think you know not much of a surprise. I mean, I've, I've always held the view that. You know, talent is universal. Opportunity is not, and uh, maybe that's just my background as a as an immigrant, probably a chip on the shoulder of just giving you know people that have just got amazing talent and uh, you know who are barrels, not ammunition. To to kind of reference Keith Radboy there and his concept of you know fi- finding tens doesn't matter where they are. And we've got team members that are in you know, out in Florida. We've got team members up in in Canada, uh, all o- all over North America, um, and, and actively looking to expand the team. So. Um, yeah, Jay and I started talking a lot on, on Twitter initially around like personal finance and just uh, investing. He was, you know, obviously doing a lot in multifamily. He'd obviously come from a, a background where he'd, um, you know, his, his upbringing, like he was very fortunate with his parents, similar to me, just instilling hard work and on entrepreneurship into, uh, you know, codifying that into his worldview pretty early on. And, you know, he was someone I think he's, he talks a lot about on your podcast, probably, you know, doing the seven days a week and just trying to build wealth for himself to kind of, you know, set, set him him and his family and, and families after that uh, through the generations up for, um, you know, kind of living a, an easier life. And 
Um, yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about that and then realized that we uh, we both had this shared shared interest and a thesis around, you know, this, the rise of small cap uh, SaaS acquisitions and, uh, and, and entrepreneurship through acquisitions you mentioned before. Jay often talks about kind of like stage one businesses being like service business. And then I spent a lot of my time in stage two, which is, uh, you know, products based or software product uh, businesses and, and entrepreneurship. And then I think there's kind of this next level, which I don't think it's not a, it's not a hierarchy in that, you know, step three is better than step one. But, um, you know, I just think it's a, it's a, it's a, a route that I see a lot of folks doing, which is they start out with a service business um, you know, it's a lot easier to get started. They've got a skill. They're selling that in exchange for, you know, selling their time in exchange for capital or, uh, or fees. And then over time, they're able to codify that, literally codify it, build it into a product that's then, you know, scalable. They could be selling it whilst they're asleep um, to then realizing, you know, sometimes it's just really challenging to keep uh, going back and finding product market fit. And, you know, you can often recognize that there are amazing businesses out there that, you know, founders, you know, they've, they've recently needed to sell their, uh, sell their home. They need some more capital or they've gone through some sort of, you know, extenuating life situation. Um, and so they're, they're looking for, for an exit and to come in and kind of be that, that partner that can go from stage one to 10. Um, is something that, that's really interesting. And so, yeah, we just had just like miraculously, it was almost like Jay was like a, a long, a long lost brother in that sense. And, uh, we spent a bunch of time and, you know, I'm always probably one of the first people to, uh, open up his, his weekly, newsletter uh with a, with a pretty amazing signal to noise ratio on uh on kind of personal finance and, and entrepreneurship and investing yeah yeah jay's awesome that's really great that you guys were able to connect and i love that like mindset shift that you just had of like you know finding tens doesn't matter where they are in the world because you know obviously earlier on your journey like hey i need to go to silicon valley like that's where the action is like that's where the hub is that's where everyone's doing things to now it's just like I mean, you didn't really mention it yet on the podcast, but you're not even living in Silicon Valley anymore. You're not in the Bay Area and I'm up in Toronto, right? Like, like this is the new world, right? It's the, the digital world. And I personally think it's only going to get crazier and more connected once we are, are starting to dawn on, you know, augmented and virtual reality glasses where, you know, you know, we're talking about innings here with like SaaS. Well, Holy shit, man, we haven't even touched 0.001% of SaaS, of what software is. We're still in the square little flat world here, which is way, way less than ideal. We're getting to part two now. We're getting into 3D where, you know, there's going to be so much opportunity. Just, you know, communication being one, but then all these other ancillary things are going to come out of that. So, man, I think like we're only at the beginning stages of this. But before we get into that, I have one, a couple more questions for you. I don't want to take up too much of your time because we're about just over an hour now. I do want to get back into just sort of what you're thinking, if you're open to it, if you're open to talking about it, what you're sort of investing in now. I mean, outside of Bloom, you talked about a little bit of diversification. And there are some people like, yeah, don't diversify, like be laser focused. But I'm definitely on the side with you of like diversifying. So I'd be interested to hear what you're also investing in, whether it's public markets, uh, real estate, or what other asset classes you're thinking about. Yeah, 100%. So it's been... um yeah, it's been a pretty pretty exciting couple of couple of months. I think you know biggest biggest thing, and you know, don't mind over oversharing here or sharing sharing pretty publicly. But yeah, obviously, it's going going through a uh, a marriage with um you know, my my wife and significant other, and kind of that's just something that a, a bridge I'd never crossed before. Uh, you know, I'm sure many of your listeners are the same. You know, like looking to hey, do we combine assets? Like, how do we start working everything out? And um, mm-hmm. you know, so that led to some like pretty interesting conversations and. Uh, work, working out what, what we what we decided to do there, but um, 
you know, as, as a part of that, that really kind of was a forcing function to think about, okay, well then how do we move, um, move you know, a parcel of cash that we, we had uh, and moving it into, you know, in, investable assets that are actually going to start compounding and not become like the value will be eroded through inflation or just leaving it in a, you know, Chase account at zero point zero one percent interest APR. So um, yeah. yeah, it's been it's been a really fascinating fascinating journey. I think there's you know it's a lot of folks far smarter than I talk about you know like public markets and you've you've got commentators both ways saying that like we're still heading for a crash and where you know so this morning was thinking this yesterday was like the, the largest number of new cases of uh, COVID nineteen in Italy all year and uh, you know as, as European markets are heading into winter, which means uh, you know, more people are going to be spending time uh, together in a, in, a, in, a, in a smaller proximity, potentially going indoors. You know, they're expecting the, the rise to become even steeper of COVID through, through you know, areas going into winter. So, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like we've been a little bit cautious around, you know, taking, um, you know, positions in, in public equities. But, yeah, I've been, we kind of like looked to branch it up across like the three areas, which is, you know, um, having real estate, which, can, again, we can kind of get, get exposure there to, to REITs, which are obviously just, click of a finger on our brokerage account, we, we kind of get access there. We've also been pretty fortunate. It's had some friends of, um, you know, uh, raising, they go out and raise capital to then do buyouts of large multifamilies and so have become limited partner in a few of those like privately syndicated deals. Um, and then uh, also looking and still spending a bit more time researching into um, uh, kind of crowdsourced um, marketplaces. So like Fundrise, Realty Mogul, Realty Shares, um, Peer Street, a few of those other ones where, again, it's kind of like that, that midway point um, between going in and buying your own property as an active property investor um, to being, you know, sitting on a REIT. You still have to do a significant amount of diligence. It's like a highly illiquid asset class. Um, uh, so, yeah, spending more time there. But, yeah, definitely really ramping up my focus on, um, on diversifying across into real estate as an asset class. Um, I think within within stocks, uh, you know, sort of like looking a lot at, at alternatives as, as well, which is um, a little a little bespoke. You know, I've, I've obviously spent a lot of my time in alternate asset classes across private equity and, and venture capital, um, but you know, I've also looked into some debt uh, providers. So you know, there's a couple of friends who, uh, one in particular that is now running a, a new uh, um, service for SaaS founders to provide like. Who are, on, who are on a subscription revenue that they can provide financing uh, for oh, that, cool. and so become a, an LP in a, in a debt facility of sorts. So, yeah, very much just looking around for kind of opportunities to try and you know have an uncorrelated uh, you know uh, asset to the economy. Just given, I think there's just so much uncertainty, um, and uh, yeah, get a little bit more diversification in my kind of my investing profile. But across, uh, other than that, in the uh, in the kind of the public equities market, like have been pretty concentrated. I've, I've sort of really tried to focus on who uh, have been, you know, beneficiaries or like which software providers have been or technology companies have been beneficiaries of COVID and, you know, right. post whatever that treatment or, um, you know, vaccine uh, looks like will remain beneficiaries. So, um, you know, I kind of look at it as like, well, hey, there's been this major structural change in the world. Like who, who are the ones that can kind of really capitalize on this? during and after um and you know companies like the zoom and, and the pelotons you know fortunate to be um you know pretty you know, an investor in some of those stocks um you know uh, earlier this year so i've seen a, a pretty good ride through some of them 
Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, like you said, like a lot of people are kind of scared to say, like, hey, um, the entire market is going to crash again. Like wave two is coming. It's going to be even crazier. Like, do you think, I mean, just based on your research and people you've talking to, do you believe that to happen? Or do you think like, hey, like the worst happened. This was like a really quick um, V-shaped recovery. Do you see it happening again? Like, I mean, anything's possible, obviously. I don't want to put it all on you, but just based on what you know so far, do you think that it's totally possible uh, for everything again to crash like that. Cause it was like across the board, everything. Right. But do you think like if it did happen again, some of these companies like Peloton and zoom will just continue to rise. And obviously Amazon's a huge beneficiary of that as well. So yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The, the only thing I know with extreme confidence is that there are people out there that have, who are, have a far greater authority to speak on this matter than, than I do. I'm, uh, yeah. you know, still still uh, doing the research stage to, to kind of form a lot of my my own own personal views. Um, uh, and then obviously how I apply that both to my personal investing as well as, you know, what our, what our positions are for uh, at, Bloom, at Bloom across both our uh, existing portfolio companies we've already made investments into and, and how they may be affected. Uh, as well as you know, what sort of opportunities may be created through potential buyout, uh, buyouts or acquisitions of, of other amazing companies as well. Um, but I do know I do have some thoughts, which are like structurally, like one, we we just weren't prepared. I mean, if you if you kind of cast back for six seven months back now, like just the fear, the unknown, the pandemonium that was being caused. Um, I mean, I think the big, the biggest thing was just the inability to kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the lack of beds in, in like in hospitals and, and people saying like, hey, you know, suppress being around other people to give our emergency services, like the infrastructure, which was just so backed up and unable to cope with the, um, you know, with the supply of, of, of patients coming through. So I think we're just much better prepared to handle that. Like we've kind of gone through, we've, we have the experience and the data now to see, you know, what that V or the, the, the U or W looked like. I think we're just going to be better prepared. So to your question of like, you know, let's say in, in February next year or March again, like we just see a, you know, a, a second wave and a huge spike of cases across North America, Europe led by, uh, you know, going into, into winter months. Um, you know, I, I Yes, I think there's going to be a, an across-the-board um, depression uh, or, or, or kind of you know, yeah, decline in a lot of those indices. Then re, re, with a rebound coming in again, because a lot of these tools, like we're all, um, you know, the biggest thing now versus, you know, the first three, four weeks after, uh, like going back to kind of April when we're all dealing with the huge crashes, um, you know, companies have realized now, hey, it's okay. We actually have the infrastructure to run an organization the size of, of Dropbox or others fully remotely. And so we now have the infrastructure. We've gone through that cultural change. Um, you know, we, we've developed the, uh, the capability sets to now run uh, our workplaces, run our family life on, against this kind of new era. So I, um, you know, I don't think, it, it, I do think that, uh, you know, we'd be, we'd be able to rebound and bounce back pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I think you're right too, like the, the business cycle is almost kind of reset, like we're at a new cycle. So like, just based on like what you think, do you think we're in the middle of that like paradigm shift? Or do you think we've kind of started to come out of it? And like a lot of these companies are learning how to run remotely? Because I think, I don't know what you think about this, but I totally think the future is like remote first, you know, and then, you know, having organizations in a physical building you know, in the software space, especially is kind of secondary. Like if you're going to build a company now, it's going to be a remote software company, like no questions anymore. Before it was like, 
do you want to do co-working? Do you want to go rent an office? Or do you want to save all that money, do it remotely because you're going to be coding and, you know, doing marketing and sales from home anyway. So do you think that like we're kind of going into this new paradigm shift of business or do you think we're like already through it? Or do you think there's still like a rocky, uh, a little couple, uh, maybe months or a year to kind of get through it with some of these businesses? I think we're very early on still. I think we're yeah, seeing yeah. some early adopters who, you know, the, 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 you know, Pinterest who, you know, um, I think it was what, like an $18 million lease in San Francisco, which they, they, they let up the Palantir moving out to, to Denver. Uh, and now all these companies, companies coming out literally in the last week to two weeks and today just kind of announcing they're going, uh, you know, not, not going back, not resuming their, their, you know, kind of ordinary, uh, workplace, uh, requirements. So, I um I don't I don't know that it's going to be a fully like remote first. I mean, we're assuming here that we're you know this is for knowledge workers only. Uh, obviously, they have the the right. like, they're, they're able basically to conduct their as long as there is a laptop or some device with an internet connection, they are able to complete their work. Right, so that that's kind of the assumption. I don't know that that's going to be fully remote first. You know, I, I speak to so many people that um you know miss that human connection. They they uh, have a you know, a setup where it doesn't actually um, bode well to be working from their primary place of residence. And so they're trying to shift between like cafes or, you know, literally working on top of other family members in the home. Um, and so, you know, TLDR is like hearing a lot of people actually saying, you know, it'd be, it'd be lovely to have both. I'd love the opportunity to kind of go, you know, go into work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday from home or whatever the structure it is. So I, I, I think, um, bottom line here, I think there's just going to be more flexibility. I think, you know, come, go, I, what I think is that gone are the days of companies saying, you need to come on campus, you need to come into the office, we don't do remote, and we're not, we don't trust you, we're not set up for that, whatever it is. I think I think now it's, you know, that that is just being debunked. I think now we're going to start seeing a lot more of like distributed where it's a, hey, we're going to have a core, you know, a head office in city A or multi-HQs, um, satellite offices, but you do not need to come into work. Um, you can work from wherever you want and check in with your manager. And there are new tools, um, new tools to create that, new you know, operational programs and, and procedures that, again, provide the guardrails to flexibly and responsibly support you know, high-performing teams with a healthy culture of uh, you know, working outside of an office environment. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it will be some kind of uh, hybrid flexibility. It's just like before, like you said, there was just like out of mind, like, no, it's just a flat out no. And now it's like, you don't really have an excuse. Well, right now you literally have to. Then after this is like, well, we were working from home last year. <laughs> like, there's going to be no excuse. So that being said, then this kind of is a great segue into my next question. I have two more questions for you because I don't want to go over too much. Um, the first one is like, is remote work and remote work tools one of the areas you're really interested in for SaaS? And then sort of follow up to that, like what are the areas that you think have the most um, opportunity right now in SaaS? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, re remote definitely is. I mean, obviously my, my background being um, largely like any, any tooling that, that kind of, you know, uh, enables uh, organizations to be high performing and, and enables employees to do their best work is kind of, broadly within what we think about. So we have three, three theses that we, we focus on um, at Bloom Capital, one being uh, work tech, secondly being fintech, and thirdly being uh, medical tech or sort of digital health. Um, so like double-clicking on that, that first point, I mean, we just think there are so many amazing tools. I mean, we've, we've basically been thrust 
five, 10 plus years into the future of how organizations and teams, uh, especially knowledge, uh, you know, in the knowledge economy work and collaborate in, in literally a matter of weeks. I mean, if you go back to kind of March and it was that just um, gradual, then sudden, hey, you, you're no longer able to come to work and, you know, please stay at home and we'll reopen in Q3 and that turned to Q4. And now, you know, speaking to friends over the last few weeks, I'm like, well, We've already heard we're not planning to go back. Our employers saying we're not coming back until second half of 2021. So we just wow. think that, again, there's just – we're really, again, early innings of the types of uh, tools that are being developed to enable this, like, structural change that's occurred in, like, how we work, live, and play. Um, and that's obviously, you know, we're focusing there on, on, on work deck, but, you know, I think it kind of goes across the board. If you look at, you know, even into to digital health, I think, you know, telemedicine is an area that we're just exceptionally excited by, by, um, you know, the applications, not only to, to, to humans, but I think, you know, certainly with, um, you know, pets, we, we spent a bunch of time looking at kind of like pet insurance and other kind of areas there. So, you know, we, we, I'd say we have a split kind of, uh, you know, 80, 20, 80% is focused on, uh, enterprise applications. So, you know, focus on B2B, but we do still have a, um, you know, an, an interest in consumer. An example of that would be, one of our portfolio companies, Kaku, they're, um, they're actually out in the, in the, in London. They're a, a challenger, uh, incumbent in the ISP or internet service provider space. And, you know, what's in a, in a market that's just fraught with really terrible experience is being left on, on hold on the customer service line for 20, 30 minutes and, uh, you know, price gouging. Uh, you know, they've kind of come in with this refreshing brand and exceptional experience and low pricing. And so that's an example where they're starting off kind of going consumer first and then we'll ultimately wrap up into, you know, into a B2B play down, down the line. But um, that's something that, you know, we're just like really, really excited by all the opportunities that are actually being created through COVID, even though the fund was, uh, was actually started and we started deploying out of that, uh, you know, about a quarter before uh, COVID really took hold. That's interesting. So yeah, you guys also had to pivot. It's interesting just to see how everyone had to pivot. You have to like, you know, read the market, see where things are going and not just be stuck in one way. And that's, that's just obvious, you know, at least to people like us, like you need to be able to pivot. So that's really cool to hear. So kind of what I'm hearing, you're, you guys are more focused on B2B more than anything. It's like, and why, why is that? Why do you think B2B SaaS is, is more of a, a I guess, better opportunity? Yeah. So I, I think, um, couple of things one is like consumer is is hard i i personally believe and i think a lot of this when you say like why is the fund and i think you know being a the sole general partner on on that fund i think a lot of it is you know my ability to diligence my ability to you know get kind of proprietary deal flow coming from other you know, uh, investors in the ecosystem other founders people in my, my network um you know large comes back to my background being in, in b2b i think i'd actually be a a pretty lousy consumer entrepreneur, a B2C consumer entrepreneur. Um, I actually just think it's really, it's really fickle, you know, like trying to create, trying to capture that lightning in a bottle. Here are so many of these companies saying like, well, hey, like we started, you know, a, a company just, you know, just like Cameo or just like this app or just like Facebook, but it was like, it was just too early and the market wasn't there to, create, to really get that like exponential growth. Um, whereas I look at these, you know, so, uh, you know, into, into selling into enterprise, and it's just like, well, it's a lot easier to validate the demand, right? It's like it's a lot easier of like how to find those customers. Um, building products, you understand there's like you know, once you've under, once you crack the key, you understand okay, it's typically around building the core application, 
focusing on security, it's focusing on performance, then it's focusing on integrations. It's kind of a playbook of like how you build B2B products. And then there's a, again, a very, very replicable playbook around how to uh, take B2B products to market and affect like cost effectively and repeatedly acquire those customers as well. And so once you understand that playbook, um, you know, it's incredibly empowering, uh, both as a, as an operator and entrepreneur, as well as, totally. as an investor, you can say, great, I can now actually have like, you know, to, to use the dangerous words, value add, I can now actually, you know, behind the scenes, you know, kind of, you know, be a, be a sparring partner in, in helping to build products and helping to build a company and take that product to market. Um, and, and really help at the earliest stages of, uh, of, of company building. So, yeah, that's really why we have, you know, uh, again, really sort of doubled down on, um, on B2B. Yeah, that's, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. If that's what you know, it makes sense to kind of double down that. Because like, like you said, the value add, you can be like, hey, not only will we just put money into you, like here's how to actually like tech, take this uh, up a notch. Or in the case of acquiring the business, you know, to actually take that, as you said, from one to ten. A lot of people think that like entrepreneurs are like these cavalier kind of like movie movie stars that you know come in and like kind of the the Elon Musk aura, and, and I, I, I call yeah. BS on that. I think you know great entrepreneurs can like spot an opportunity or you know see see around corners and see where a market is going and the opportunities that can be unearthed, and they're actually extremely risk averse. Right, they're trying to take as much risk and increase the odds of success. So said differently, I think I'd be a lousy consumer entrepreneur because um, it's really hard to then like de-risk, like will this catch on in the market, right? Um, like Clubhouse as an application, for example, like I think it's just been just this incredible wave and then it's like, okay, are they going to continue to maintain that energy uh, in the community? Whereas if you understand that there is a repeatable blueprint in building B2B SaaS companies and knowing that they, you know, it takes a can take a lot longer to actually build the products and get it to market and build trust and go through your SOC 2 uh, compliance requirements, this, that, and the rest. And sales cycles, obviously, much, much longer. But once you get that flywheel spinning and the fact that it's just repeatable, I think it lowers the risk. Once you've got product market fit, it then lowers the risk of failure. And so that's why we're, um, yeah. you know, that combined with that, the valuations we're seeing, um, you can just pre- you can create just incredibly valuable um, you know, businesses around B2B uh, SaaS. Totally. And I think also because of their, you know, these tools that these businesses literally rely on, they run their business on it. There's like this thing at lack of a better term, but the stickiness to it, as people call it, you know, you know, there's that repeatable income because they need to keep using it and keep going. So that makes a lot of sense. I like that. And you mentioned that blueprint. Um, is this something, where have you a learned the blueprint? Is this something that's like available? Can like entrepreneurs find this blueprint? Are there books on this? Is it maybe like a, a blog resources, but like the resource on that blueprint of like starting it and then growing it, where can people find that? Yeah, I think, uh, so I think for my, my own kind of, uh, you know, Yes, scorched fingers of experience of uh, you know like running uh, a lot of programs, or kind of growth growth marketing programs. But um, yeah, certainly. Look, I, I think trying to um, you know focus on mentors coming from from books or other people is just you know don't um, don't spend time kind of learning it yourself when you can kind of shortcut and and you know mm. increase the slope of your learning curve by building an amazing network around you. Um, and I think you know folks like Andrew Kazdecki have spent a lot of time learning from Andrew, who's a now he's a very successful entrepreneur, has built and sold a lot of companies, and has a very similar mindset to uh, to where I'm at, at these days. Kind of like 
um, you know, entrepreneurship or sort of acquisition entrepreneurship and kind of not being afraid to kind of do a lot of singles and doubles from a, you know, wealth creation perspective. He talks a lot, you know, it's around like product and company building and bootstrapping in particular. Um, and he's now the uh, founder of microacquire.com, which is a, a marketplace for buying and selling, um, you know, small cap software companies. Um, in addition to that, I mean, I think, yeah, specifically on SaaS companies like David, David Cummings, who's um, one of the founders, I think CEO of um, Pardo, which then sold to Salesforce. He um, has a great blog. And then, um, you know, Jason Lemkin, you know, again, obviously right there in the middle of the this SaaS ecosystem, probably Nathan Latka would be my, um, my, my last one. But yeah, just trying to surround yourself with this, uh, you know, an indispensable advisory network of you know, peers online and in, in blogs and books is, um, you know, a great way. I think every... Every founder should be, you know, carving out at least a day a week, um, not all at once, but you know, throughout the week, to yeah. just read as, as much as possible and learn. Yeah, man, I totally agree. That's that's the reason why I started this podcast. Is the reason why we're able to chat. You're definitely part of this uh, tribe of mentors. You know, as a Tim Ferriss quote there, but uh, that's exactly it. And I'm so glad that you're able to. Uh, graciously, you know, give your time for this podcast, we can chat. And I hope um, we can do this again, maybe even off podcast and just chat and, you know, Twitter, I'm going to link both of our Twitters uh, on the the podcast so people can find us. But I have one last question for you too, um, before we go, which is, um, what are you really excited about? I always love to end with this question. What is something you're super excited about coming up? Uh, either, either with business life, or just, you know, in general, what's just something that like really excites you that you want to share? Well, on a, on a personal front, I'm very excited to uh, get get to a point where uh, my my wife and I can can finally celebrate our our, uh, our marriage and do that at a at a wedding with uh, family and friends, either present or, or zoomed in. Uh, you know the, the challenges of having a uh, international couple. We've got family back in Australia, uh, obviously, and, and family out across out in the US. So that's one uh, real highlight I'm looking forward to uh, coming up. And then, yes, secondly, I think just on the, uh, on the, the Bloom side, like I think, you know, for, for us, we're actively expanding our, our portfolio of both uh, investments as, as well as acquisitions. Um, you know, we're, we're really excited to continue bringing amazing companies into our portfolio across the fold. So, um, you know, if there's any, any folks in your community that are that entrepreneurs building companies themselves or they, you know, they've got peers who are, who are building companies and, and looking for some you know, capital to continue growing or they're looking to you know, potentially sell and, and uh, you know, kind of take a different role on the journey or move on to their, you know, the next step of their career altogether, um, you know, through a complete, uh, you know, exit of the company and, and transition out from an operating role. Yeah, we would we'd love to chat. Yeah, absolutely. And so where can people find Bloom and where can they reach out to you guys? What's the best way to get into the deal flow? Yeah, well, the other point as well is we do have a, a scout program as well, which we're um, we're rolling out pretty shortly. So if, if folks kind of are, are interested in what we're doing, but, but don't have the businesses to sell or to invest in, um, but know people, you know, we're definitely coming coming to hit us up. We've got a um, pretty generous scout program coming out shortly. Um, but yeah, folks can find us on online bloomvp.com to Bloom Venture Partners, and uh, yeah, Jay is at Jay Vass uh, on Twitter, and I'm at Bart McDonald, and. Uh, yeah, spending a lot, lot more of my time uh, these days just like doing office hours and you know, I'm just personally just uh, doing this. I just get so much of my energy and my debits in, uh, you know, in the form of just helping other entrepreneurs and you know, sparking ideas and, and just getting good vibrations from connecting with other awesome people. So, um, you know, if, if folks want to just reach out and just like have a chat online or I can be helpful in, in anything, like please, please do reach out. 
Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for this even Bart. So that's great that you're reaching out, um, opening up the doors to other entrepreneurs. That's amazing. So I really appreciate you taking the time for, the, uh, for this podcast and we'll definitely have to uh, continue our conversation and just stay in touch because um, uh, like you said, having that tribe of mentors is definitely um, the best way to level up. And I think uh, hopefully you can be part of that for my network. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time to be on the podcast. For sure, man. Thanks so much for having me today. And uh, yeah, very excited to keep in touch and keep riffing on ideas with you. Awesome. Take it easy, man. Thanks, Josh. Cheers.